You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What a great book for anyone who's ever been interested, even for a second, in the personal development, inspirational category. This book, Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential by Brian Johnson. You have to just visually see this book. It's 451 chapters, a thousand pages. It's almost like a little cube, but it's actually very fast to read because every chapter is just one or two pages and it's really well done. And it interweaves all these hundreds of stories and different authors and philosophers into one cohesive strategy for living the best life you can live. The word arete means every day living the best life. And this book is about how to do it. And there's hundreds of stories and examples. Brian Johnson has his own stories. And we talk about it from various perspectives. In the very beginning, we're talking about how his son is super interested in chess, which is coincidental to me. So we talk about how he's using Arate with his son. But then we dive into so many different subjects about what it means to activate your heroic potential. One of my funnest podcasts that I've done, check it out, subscribe to the podcast. If you like it, share it with your friends, do whatever you want. But I really recommend listening to this one. Thanks. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. I was the New Jersey junior champion, and now I'm the Georgia senior champion. Dude. And I remember I played at the National Tournament of State Senior Champions a few months ago, and one of the GMs, everybody there was... You know, there was a bunch of GMs, IMs, FMs, and me, and everybody there was 250 points lower than their high um, because they're all no like way. over 50 years old. Yep. And I remember Elliot Winslow, who was an IM, told me um, I was delusional that, you know, and I'm like, well, do you study? And he says, I study hours a day, but he's 77 years old. So maybe, <laughs> but and then another guy. Here. <laughs> You're and, like, well, all right, uh, let's go. Yeah, I know, but it's a good for the story. And now- Another guy did a study almost like as a favor, and he kind of analyzed all the USCF data going all the way back. Essentially, maybe one person has done what I'm trying to do. Wow. And, oh, I mean, one person has succeeded. Everyone else has yep. failed. Like tens of thousands well, have failed. And I am so inspired right now. Yeah, well. So how old were you at your peak? How old were you at your peak? I stopped playing also like 
from high school to to this time. And when I was, I guess I was 28 and I was rated 2048. I remember the exact rating. Yep. And in six months working with John Fedorowicz, I became 2250 and then I stopped. Okay. Oh, actually okay, then I went uh, down a little bit uh, yep. and I stopped at like 2208. And, oh um, and now though I'm in the 2000s because it's, it's, it's these, these, first off, the whole chess world has improved. Like yep. just training has improved, openings have improved, theory has improved. You know, computers gave us good lessons on what new good strategies are. And now young people and everybody has computers to train with, or you go on Zoom and you have lessons with a Bulgarian grandmaster and whatever. And, but I've been doing everything. I've been, I've talked to neurologists, sports coaches, sports psychologists. I have a chess coach, obviously. And it is just hard. Uh, and I, I know I'm better than I had dinner with Magnus Carlson. Like I know, I know I've learned, but somehow my playing skills are not as good. Hmm. And I'm still figuring it out. Um, Arate, I'm still Arate, let's go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Again, so much there is so inspiring. And your target is what? To get over it or to go over at a certain point or how are I guess you, how are really you my target is to go over 2200 again. I mean, you're yep. once a master, always a master in the title system. Yep. But, yep. and I've learned so much and it's been, it's obviously such a beautiful game. But what you told Emerson in like chapter two, um, so early on in the book, it, that, you know, you can't be afraid. And you you talk about this throughout the book, like fear mm. is is in the path, is in, mm. is, you know, blocks mastery. And yep. what you told Emerson about, it's a win when you can learn from the game. That's a mm. very hard lesson to learn, particularly if you're mm. losing a lot. So I, yep. I always have a choice, you know, in tournaments. I could play in, you know, the second section or I can play in the premier section. And in the second section, I'm going to win a lot of games. In the premier mm. section, you know, I'm playing GMs and IMs. I'm going to lose a lot of games. Mm. And I've lost a lot of games in the past mm. year and a half. And it does get to you sometimes. Yep. Dude, well, we'll have to talk about, I'll send you, we'll need to connect after, and uh, I'll send you, we've got this protocol, dude. He's like a world-class athlete. Every single match before it, we're doing a certain set of things. You know, he'll bang out 33 burpees. He listens to his mom's one-minute, like, declaration track set to Rocky. Dude, it's so good. So he walks in, just in this peak state, ready to go. Um, so just, we're having so much fun playing the margins, particularly with the energy. Because when I look at the chess world, the one thing that I think is undertapped is true mastery from a physical perspective. Like a Tiger Woods of chess doesn't exist. You know, coming in and redefining what it means to be an athlete, where you're using uh, your I body. I would argue to Magnus Carlsen is like the, the Tiger he's Woods. He's the closest, of chess. dude. But but again, yeah. with respect to Magnus, he's talking about sleep. He's doing this and that. But that's not. He, the, he, there's a lot of room to go up from where Magnus is. And you're right. He's kind of the apex. But, you know, uh, Wesley So talked about it in the recent championship and, and all these things. But I think that that's an undertapped opportunity. That's huge high leverage gains. And you're right. Not only in chess, but in many fields, like a business meeting, there isn't the same thing. But if, But basketball... They do their exercises. Then it's all okay. Put your hands in the middle. One, yep. two, three, victory! And like yep. they really, and the coach gives a talk. Like they really pump themselves up. No one does that. And I'll say chess, but in 
painting, writing, business, investing. No one does that kind of like pump, pump me up sort of thing. And I've been wondering about this lately. What is the value of that in some of these yep. other endeavors? Like, should I listen to, you know, a heroic, you know, a, a heroic yep. speech beforehand, like Rocky and, and do the exercises? Like, what do you think? Well, I think it. I think it um, needs to be part of an overall kind of training strategy. So for me, it's it's the basic fundamentals and showing up like a world class athlete, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, training your mind focus before you get to the event, and then putting yourself in a peak state just makes sense. Like, why wouldn't I do the things that allow me to show up at the most high level cognitively? And it's my belief that our physiology drives a lot more of our psychology than most people recognize. Um, and I, particularly- I agree, and the, the physiology, I do. So I do the exercise, I sleep, nutrition, all this stuff has completely changed for me in the past year and a half because of this quest I'm on. But what about that getting into that peak state right before a high yeah, performance yeah, yeah. event? Yeah, and again, I'm gonna playfully push back again. I would wanna know what you're doing and I'd wanna know if you're at a world-class standard because I believe that that mm -hmm. will significantly contribute to your performance, especially with the kind of disadvantages you have, you need to play the margins even tighter. And I believe, again, it's a huge competitive advantage in your domain in particular with chess and Emerson's. I mean, dude, there are very few kids that are doing what he's doing. The way he eats and moves and sleeps and, um, and trains his mind, he doesn't use screens. I mean, the things that we're doing other than when he's playing chess, are significant. And when I walk into that chess room and he's walking in, we'll get to the, how he walks in. I look around and I'm seeing families that are struggling physiologically, you can tell from um, just a physical vantage point, and it's almost unfair in many degrees, you know? And again, when I look at the, the, the top performers in chess, and I just watched whatever the championship was, he watches Hikaru for hours a day. I love Hikaru. I'd love to come in and coach Hikaru on his <laughs> eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, but you know, there's a level of performance that one can go to that's superior to them the current when you really I, I will pay say attention Hikaru to has gotten healthier in the past two years that I've been watching him. Um, but you're right, probably no one except for Magnus is at athletic levels of physiology. I think Magnus is. He he has well, yes, and huge but I mean, presence. I, yes, and. I mean, I would want to know different parameters. And again, what standards are we holding him to? Others in chess or Rory McIlroy or LeBron James? Or what, what standards are we holding him to? I mean, there's an excitement. And Magnus is a straw person, and he's clearly at the peak in that domain. I would offer again that what would a, a true world-class athlete um, – uh, you know, look like and act like and perform like in that regard. And again, Magnus is is obviously one of a kind and, and superior. Um, but then for the mortals among us, it becomes even more important to find those opportunities to, um, to be our best um, in general, let alone if we want to perform well at the board. Um, but it's super fun chat for me and we're having fun with, with him, you know, Emerson doing that. But in terms of the state, so for us, when he's playing, um, I like to say that today began yesterday. So how you ended yesterday is going to dictate how you start today. So we start with a shutdown complete ritual. We got all the blue light stuff, getting to bed early, circadian rhythms, getting a great night of sleep is always our number one priority. We're waking up, we're getting early AM sunlight. We're putting in a 15, 30 minute fun workout. You know, we invent workouts in parking lots called Skippy Ball. 
throwing a ball back and forth while we do little, you know, back and forth movements and kicking the ball and running and having fun like a 10-year-old would want to have. Um, and then he's walking into the game uh, with that physiology kind of in that state where, you know, as John Rady would say, exercise is like releasing a little bit of Ritalin and a little bit of Prozac, you know, that brain chemistry fundamentally changes when we've exercised, even for two, three, five minutes. Yeah, I remember in the book you say um, not exercising is like taking a stress pill in the morning. A depressant is how Tal Ben-Shahar puts it. He says the days you don't exercise, it's as if you popped a depressant pill. And again, he's using it to exaggeratedly make the point, but we evolved to move. And uh, to the extent we're not moving in any given day, we're violating our underlying, you know, evolutionary physiology, which is going to drive our physical energy and presence and psychology, et cetera. Um, but we have a lot of fun architecting a pre-match ritual, just like a professional athlete would do. And we're ritualistic about it. And it's become part of how we do things. Um, so then it includes... Um, you know, the morning workout, but then between matches, and of course, he's playing three or so long matches a day on these weekend tournaments that are going from 90 minutes to two hours. Sure. Um, and be before that, you know, we do a little bit of movement, whether it's three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, and it now includes 33 burpees. 11 burpees, we'll move around, play catch, do some sprints, then another 11 burpees, play some more, do another 11 burpees. And then as we're walking in, we're listening to his mom's little declarations, which last 60 seconds, you know, telling him, you've got this, and I love chess, and I'm going to play, you know, win or learn, all the little things, you know? And I'll literally share it with you because it's kind of fun. And, um, and and do you think that works? I do. Sometimes and I have disbelief in, like, I think to myself, I'm just bullshitting myself. Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. And again, everything else needs to be under under this the foundation is you know he loves chess he's playing four six eight hours a day he's watching hikaru for hours a day he's watching these championship matches like i used to watch the world series he's in the culture of chess he loves it that's not going to work unless you did the work but then of course we want to think about the things that can put us in a peak state that's the tip of the iceberg the physiology i think is is unbelievably important and again the nutrition and just all the little little things that we do on that front. Um, but then, yeah, I have him assume a strong posture, chest up, chin down, literally is what I've told him hundreds of times, chest up, chin down, he's breathing in through his nose, down into his belly. Um, he sits down, he's sitting down strong, and he's connecting with the individual and, and um, training his breath. And, and the, yeah, I think those things matter. Um, do any one of them dictate everything? Of course not. But in aggregate, I do believe that those margins matter. I agree. The only question I'm asking is the inspirational stuff he's listening to from his mom right beforehand. Do you think that does change you to be a little bit more positive and, and optimistic going in there? The short answer is yes. I think that peak performers know how to control their mental state. And I think that that particular set of declarations helps him focus his mind in constructive, directive ways where he's talking to himself, not listening to himself while he's walking into a match that is superior. Positive orientation. And again, we're, these things include win or learn, you know, I'm playing every move, process things. It's not some manicky, silly, whatever, you know, it's a, no, no. And, and the meditation we have, by the way, which we do at least once during the day is 
tournaments are won in the days and weeks and months preceding the event. Literally, this is his mom telling him this in a seven-minute meditation. So we're constantly Wait, your mom's really into this. I mean, his mom's really into this. His mom's as crazy about this stuff as I am, and he's a lucky kid to have her, you know, supporting in all the different ways. But um, I don't, I think it's a nice additive. I'm not suggesting that it is the foundation of, of peak performance, but I do think that even Magnus, I mean, I, I, Magnus, who's mentally stronger than him? You know, we're watching an interview that he did in the last tournament. Um, and the announcers, you know, were right there. So the players could hear the announcers commenting on their games. Uh, I'm sorry, before they started, they could hear the, the, the announcers. And one of them predicted Magnus to lose. And he heard him say that. And they predicted another guy would lose. And that guy heard him say it. That guy got pissed off and stressed out and lost. Magnus heard it and basically said, yeah, all right, buddy. And he called him, I'm going to show you, and he called him out on it. That mental toughness, that ability to, yeah. to shape your mind is, I mean, what's more important than that in the, the span of a tournament and a, and a match that might not be going the way you want, right? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for fourteen hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to 
hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I mean, Magnus is one of the few players who tends to do better after suffering from a loss. In every way, he does better. Like he wins, but even the computer says every move is better um, yeah. after he suffers a loss. Whereas a lot of other players, they get disappointed and they do worse. Yeah, so how do you reverse engineer that? And this is where we come back to what we were talking about before of that growth mindset, truly operationalizing winning or learning and knowing that that losing is part of it. And And again, he knows how many times Magnus has lost. He knows what Magnus does after he loses. And there's a, a level of um, fearlessness isn't quite the right word, but pretty darn close. Um, when I, it took me, you know, I'm 49 years old. I'm still learning these ideas. I was a fixed mindset son of a father that struggled with alcohol. I had to do everything perfectly. It wasn't okay to make mistakes. So that's been one of the biggest things we've tried to teach him is the only way you learn is through mistakes. Lean into it, you know, win or learn. Um, but that can't be a, a, a platitude. I've worked hard to show him that every time that he's lost, there was a lesson there. And then that lesson translated into a future win such that the still hurts when, when he loses. But there's a, there's a deeper understanding of, yeah, 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 but I truly learned that. And I know that from the past, that led to a win in the future. So I'm going to alchemize it quickly. 
And then, you know, that Magnus um, ferocity of, all right, I see how it goes. And we turn it up rather than, than shame ourselves and, and kind of spiral out, right? I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because the negative self-talk is, is really hard to avoid once you start losing, whether it's a game or a sales pitch or, you know, you're writing something and you don't quite like it. It's so easy to slip into kind of these negative habits. And you, you talk about this in the book. Let's talk about the book for a second. First off, I'll tell you one re the, the first thing I noticed about the book, which forced me to read it, is the book is beautiful. <laughs> like, it's 451 chapters, you know, how many pages? 900, I'm, I'm over a thousand pages. By, by the way, quite beautiful that it's 1,024 pages, two to the hmm. power of 10. So hmm. uh, I don't know if you realize that, that that's how it worked out. But, hmm. um, and you draw from not only your own experiences, but you draw from so many great authors, many of whom have been on this podcast, but so many like great and inspirational authors. And, and I like that you take the important ideas from each, you talk about how it's applied to your own life or you tell other stories. And it's basically 451 chapters about mastery, like all the tools and, and techniques and ideas one would need to know about mastery. Tell me about the title, Arate. Yeah, Arate. And it's interesting too, because a friend of mine sent me your interview with Robert Greene, in which you briefly talked about the book and of course, mastery and that that idea of, of making the book a work of art. So it means a lot to me that you reflect on the beauty. We tried hard to create something that had a felt sense of um, just differentiated beauty, you know, that, that, that just felt different in your hand, literally. Um, so and, and, you... and the reason I told Robert Greene about it is because that's Robert Greene's thing as well. He loves just the, the book itself to be a beautiful sculpture. Mm. Yeah. And of course the content has to match that, but which yours does and, and his, all of his books do. Um, but I felt that way about your book. Like, and I gave me, it inspired me in terms of my own writing. Like, Oh, maybe I should try this idea of like a massive number of chapters. Cause that's an interesting thing mm. about topics you love. Well, I'm inspired by your work too, you know, choose yourself and others like just that conversational pithy, you know, for you, I can say iconoclastic, boom, here we go, you know, like it or love it, like that, that level of intensity and clarity of communication. I've been inspired by you and your work in Robert, um, et cetera. Um, but the, the title Arate, it's essentially, it's an ancient Greek word. If you ask the ancient Roman Stoics how to live a good life, they would have answered you in a single word. And that word is arate, which we translate as virtue or excellence, but has a deeper meaning, something closer to being your best self moment to moment to moment. So I actually had a different title um, before we settled on this. But then I looked down at my right forearm where I've tattooed arate, right? And I'm thinking about the fact, well, this is, it's the one word summation. Um, and yet no one knows how to spell it, let alone pronounce it, but they should. Why did this word ever fall out of our cultural vernacular? It was the essence of a good life in ancient Greece and Rome. Um, let's bring it back. So that's kind of the origin story for the, the book's title. Um, and uh, we can talk about more about that, obviously, but that's that's the, the short-ish answer on that one. Yeah, so now we get into the techniques. And, you know, and, and you divide it up into various 
categories, and I love all the categories, but let me just read some of them out loud. Um, make today a masterpiece. That's a, a beautiful concept because when you keep that in your mind, it prevent it really prevents you from the negative self-talk actually because once you say, you know, damn, I'm a loser, that day is no longer a masterpiece basically. <laughs> so, uh, you know, master yourself, activate your superpower. Like these are very, and then each one of these sections has, you know, like 50 or 100 chapters. So I don't even know where to start. Talk about anti-fragile confidence because I think that's an important concept. Dude, uh, goosebumps as you say that, and there's so much we can go on on that. When the negative voice comes up, doesn't mean you're going to have a bad day. Depends on what you do when it comes up. So if you can recognize it as the resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about, and by the way, my book is The War of Art Meets War and Peace and or kind of Churchill's uh, biography, which was the two proxies for this book. Um, but that's a longer chat. But anti-fragile confidence, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's actually the newest tattoo on this arm. I've got heroic. Oh my God. And dude, literally in the last week, I put anti-fragile confidence. So this is the thing that, um, that I've been asked to speak about the most. So the U.S. men's national team was in Austin, you know, a month or two ago, came and talked to the for, team about anti-fragile confidence. For soccer, U.S. men's national okay. soccer team was in Austin. And then literally two weeks ago, um, uh, was invited to give a talk at uh, the U.S. Special Operations Command by General Fenton, um, talking about resiliency. Only my first slide in the talk was resiliency. I put a line through it, strike through, anti-fragility. So the and, idea And can of, I ask you, but before you explain it, why are you being asked to speak, you know, a little background on you, why are you being asked to speak at the U.S. Special Operations Command? Like that's a pretty pretty big gig that they're trusting you with speaking to these you know powerful players yeah it was a sacred honor i mean it was the top commanding officers of the special forces um uh talking about the fact it's the first soft truth which is people are more important than hardware and the theme was mental health resilience etc um uh I mean, there's no straight answer to that. I've been working hard for a long time. You know, Robert Greene's mastery of Master Your Craft, put in the effort. Um, and as it turns out, over the years, um, striving to serve and been blessed to serve some people at some pretty high levels at uh, in the military, in the corporate world, um, in the sports world. And uh, we've done some work with West Point. We've rolled out our heroic app at West Point. We've done some other work I can't talk about. Um, and then, uh, Why? you know, why, why uh, are you being asked? Oh, why How do they know asked? you? I th uh, from, from the work I did with the Philosopher's Notes um, and with the Heroic app, uh, we've trained 10,000 coaches from 100 countries. And so uh, a lot of our coaches wind up being people at pretty high levels in these different organizations. And so it was through connections like that um, that General Fenton found me and the work. General Fenton is the four-star general running SOCOM. Um, 70,000 special forces operators and command support personnel report up into him. And um, he believed I can contribute to uh, the mental health of their warriors and invited me out. You say yes to an invitation like that and let's go. Sure. So we've worked with the Navy SEALs as well in different contexts. Um, and uh, uh, ROTC cadet, I mean, it's been a, it's been a blessed thing, but, but uh, it's the, the reason, again, to try to answer the question more directly is um, I think I have a unique perspective on how to integrate ancient wisdom 
modern science, and practical tools. It's been scientifically proven to work in multiple contexts with randomized controlled trial studies. And for whatever reason, um, I found resonance um, with uh, some elite performers in, in communities like that. So, okay, so anti-fragile confidence. You were speaking about this, and this is a topic you speak about quite a bit. It reminds me of Nassim Taleb's yeah, book, Anti-Fragile. Yeah, 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 nobody else has made that connection before. Yeah, so we define two different terms, right? Anti-fragile and confidence. So Nassim Taleb, um, I realize I've always mispronounced that, um, but is the one who coined the word anti-fragility. So again, we think of of resiliency, but I love the spectrum where you can be fragile, life hits you, you break. You can be resilient, life hits you, you can withstand more pressure, you break down, you bounce back faster. But as Nassim says, what's the opposite of fragility? What if when you get hit? What if when you lose a chess match? What if when you lose a job or you have a health challenge, you use that stimuli and that challenge to get stronger? Um, that's anti-fragility. And the metaphor he uses is a wind will extinguish a candle, but it will fuel a fire. So my question is, which are you? Are you a candle or are you a fire? How can you train yourself to use the thing that used to break you to make you stronger? It's like going to the gym, you lift real weights, you're not lifting styrofoam weights. Now, of course, there's a practice to that, which leads us to confidence. So anti-fragility as a concept is as I described it. Confidence, etymologically, the word confidence comes from the two Latin words, which I will now mispronounce, confidere, right? Intense trust is what confidence is. Intense trust that things are gonna go perfectly, of course not, that you have what it takes to meet whatever life throws at you. So then my question is, how do you build intense trust in any relationship? If, if you and I wanna build trust, then we need to do what we say we will do. If I don't do what I say I will do, you shouldn't trust me. Well, I like to say, if you don't do what you say you will do, you shouldn't trust yourself. If you say you're going to meditate and move a certain way and eat a certain way and be with your family in a certain way and you consistently aren't, then you're eroding your trust and you shouldn't have an intense level of trust in yourself. Now stated positively, when you get clear on who you are at your best, you make those commitments to do those things, you earn your own trust. And that's the heart of everything I do is forging anti-fragile confidence by helping people get clarity on who they are at their best and then make that prior best their new baseline. That's a Josh Waitzkin um, phrase. Make your prior best your new baseline. Too many people give away their gains. They've performed at a high level, but then they forget what they did at those moments and they're constantly going forward and then back. So what I like to do That's is so help true. people architect that protocol and then execute it um, more and more consistently. Well, and I wanna hear how you do that, but I wanna say that's really true. Like. The, the the time where you have where you could potentially lose the most money is right after you make the most money. Like right after you sell your business, that's the one year period you've got to watch out for losing all your money because you stop performing at that high peak level. And so, okay, so how do you how do you kind of keep that protocol in place? Yeah, well, first thing you got to recognize is the importance of a protocol. So in my talk, um, uh, there's a few different themes that I that I that I kind of use to structure it. Um, uh, I'll quickly touch on a couple, then I'll get to the protocol. So the first soft SOF, Special Operations Forces, the first soft truth is that people are more important than hardware. 
right? And that was the theme of the event. So I had a slide up saying that the first soft truth, people, these special forces operators are more important than the hardware. Perfect. But then I say the first life truth is the ultimate war isn't outside of ourselves. The ultimate game isn't outside of ourselves. It's in our own head. So we've got to train ourselves to play that game well to win that war. Then, then you look at it and you come back to the protocol. So the, the way I like to frame it up is um, Atul Gawande, you know, in the checklist manifesto, yeah. he talks about the fact that, that you would never get on a plane if the pilot didn't run through a checklist, period. It would never happen. They have a systematic checklist they go through to make sure the plane is ready to be taken off into flight. Well, he learned that, that surgical teams that don't have a checklist of the most mundane things, hey, my name is so-and-so, we're operating on this part of the body, blah, blah, blah. The teams that don't have checklists kill 47% more people than people who have checklists. So in that moment, I'm like, I uh, continue the theme with, well, you need a checklist. You, as a warrior, have a checklist, if I'm so calm, you have a checklist for the war, you're fighting out there, but do you have a checklist to help the human being win the war within their mind? And then do you, as a chess player, have a fundamental protocol and checklist that you execute, especially when you don't feel like it. Um, and that's the trick. That's so really the, important, by the way, especially which, when you don't feel like it. Dude, so so my coach is a guy named Phil Stutz, who's one of my my few living heroes on the wall. Love Phil Stutz. Love the book, The Tools. We had Barry Michaels on the podcast. Uh, Phil couldn't make it, unfortunately, but love his stuff. Oh, okay, cool. We'll need to see if we can circle back and get him on. Um, Phil is my spiritual father. I've done 400 one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with Phil over the last, we're now in our eighth year. Um, wow. In one of our early sessions, he uh, he complimented me on emotional stamina. He said, dude, he said, Brian, you have a lot of emotional stamina, perhaps more than I've ever seen is what he said. Very end of our chat. I'm like, well, that's awesome. I have no idea what emotional stamina is, but cool, go me. Next session, what's emotional stamina? And he said that, that it's basically my ability to tolerate pain, uncertainty, and hard work, his three unavoidables in life. And then follow-on question, how do I get more of it? So how can I cultivate that emotional stamina, which I now call evolved into anti-fragile confidence? And what he told me is, is tattooed on my brain, which is you need to have a protocol such that the worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. So when you are feeling hammered by life, that's when you need to be most committed to doing the things you do when you're at your best. Now, the old me and most people and me when I'm not at my best, when I get hit, I want to go do all the numbing things, all the things that invite the circus into town that I know I shouldn't be doing. But now when I get hit, that becomes an opportunity to, to focus on my protocol with even more ferocity. It's what Magnus does that one of the things he does that allows him to respond to a loss. He, I, boom, he knows that now's the time to step it up in every regard. Um, so that algorithm of the worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol is the essence of anti-fragile confidence, but it presupposes you have a protocol. It presupposes you have identified your checklist of the things you do when you're at your best. And that's what I try to help people get clarity on. So give me an example of someone you've helped who you help build their checklist. It could be a business guy, it could be a sports guy, it could be a creative. Like, give me an example of an unusual protocol you help someone develop. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can share my own with you. Yeah. Basically, the app is all about this. So the app is all about help heroic 
helping you get clarity on your protocol. One of the, the objectives in the book is you got to simplify self-development into what I call the big three. So that's one of the big things we do is you got to know who you are at your best in your energy, your work, and your love. Um, and then you can systematically architect your life. So you're doing the things that keep you plugged in when you're at your best energy-wise. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite human beings on the planet who's become a dear friend, one of our coaches that we've trained was the hitting coach for the New York Yankees, a guy named Sean Casey. Um, he's got a protocol where he steps up and every day he's doing certain things in his energy, certain things for his work, and then certain things for his love. Um, and they're basic, basic fundamental things. So for me, for example, sleep is my number one thing. I used to be up and down um, for a range of reasons, but my number one thing is sleep. And my number I one- I agree with that. And I think that's become a lot more understood, particularly in the personal improvement community, that sleep is critical. Ariana Huffington wrote a book about sleep. Yeah. Uh, Sean Stevenson, who runs the yep, uh, of Model Health podcast, wrote a book about sleep. Very valuable. I think people know this part. Not to interrupt well, okay, you. Okay, cool. No, no. So yeah. my question is, and my challenge is, perfect. You know it. Do you do it? We got to move from theory to practice to mastery. So every single day, I recommit to being a certain type of human being. And we can talk more about identities and how important that is. Um, but I'm in bed for nine to 10 hours a night. So I get my eight to nine hours of sleep per night because 90% efficiency is obviously very, very good. And then I'm, I'm, you know, meditating. I train my mind for 15, 30 don't do 60 minutes anymore. That was were nice days. Um, and then I'm moving. That's funny. That's like my way. path as well with meditation. Like I used to do 60 minutes. Now I, I don't do 60 minutes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. But we have basic things. And my challenge is if I can help you get clarity on what you do at your best, and then I can get you to recommit to doing that, not on New Year's Eve, but every single day, I call that new days resolutions are much better than new year's resolutions. And if you know what you do when you're at your best, in your energy, your work, and your love, three simple things in each, and you do them, good luck having a really bad day. You'll have challenges, you'll have off days, of course, because you're human, but your highs will get higher and your lows will get higher. So it's taking the simple, obvious stuff, making a checklist out of it, a protocol out of it, and then doing it especially when you don't feel like doing it. Then the things that used to hit you and knock you off and, and break you down literally become the things that make you stronger. That's the essence of anti-fragile confidence. Those are some general principles we use to help people get clarity. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Well, let's talk about Sean Casey. So he's got his kind of life protocol. Okay, I'm going to sleep, exercise, nutrition. What would Let's get more specific with him. Does he have a protocol that he helps people develop for when you're actually at bat? One minute from now, the pitcher is going to be pitching. 
And and what's your checklist for a battle? Dude, okay, cool. Well, uh, I can tell you that that box you received, the VIP box, Sean Casey got that. The New York Yankees got that on the last day of the season, right? And then the, he shared what he shared with them in the last talk he gave them. But what he told him was, here's the book by my buddy who does this and this and this. And Arate, it's what you did to get here. You got to the Yankees because you live with Arte. You close the gap between who you're capable of being and who you're actually being. We need you to do it off the field, um, in the offseason, et cetera. The specifics of what Sean has people do, I can't speak to, but I can tell you that they do the exact same thing every time. There's a basal ganglia programmed. I'm not thinking about it. Every moment is the same for me. Every moment is my you know, game seven, bases loaded, I'm the guy that needs to get a hit. Every single moment I'm approaching with an intensity. I'm playing this at bat. Like it is the most important at bat I'm ever going to have. And this pitch more, more importantly. And I'm working my process. I'm working that protocol. So I can't tell you the three things he has them do. But I can tell you he has them do those three things. And I can also tell you that he shares the same philosophy in terms of it can't happen in the three seconds before the pitch comes in. You better have lived in integrity with your values, in your eating, your moving, your sleeping, your breathing, your focusing, in your family life, in order to show up in that moment and give your best. But there's the ritualistic. I mean, it's this is Robert Greene again. I mean, it's the true master who makes the ultimate yeah. craft their life. This is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. In his book, Creativity, he says the thing you should study with these great creators is how they created their lives. It's exactly what Robert says in Mastery. So architecting our lives such that we're connected to our best selves, such that that version of us comes through. And when the, you know, the Greeks called that, when you live with Arate, you experience the summum bonum, the highest good of life, eudaimonia. That means, etymologically, it's good soul, eudaimon. So the daimon is your guiding spirit. The diminutive of daimon is demon. Demon is the voice in your head that when you lose a chess game comes on the airwaves. Well, we need to be able to step back, see that, and run an algorithm. If this, then that. If that voice comes up, then I immediately do this. Because that's Stephen Pressfield's resistance. That's Phil Stutz's part X. It's an inevitable part of life. And you better have a plan of what you're going to do when that voice comes up. Um, but it's exciting, you know, and we can kind of frame it all up and um, and uh, create the awareness, have the wisdom to know the game we're playing, and then the discipline to play it uh, day in and day out, especially, again, to repeat myself deliberately when we don't feel like it, right? Yeah, and, and again, I, I love the idea that you add when you don't feel like it because most of the time you don't feel like doing things like, look, if I could choose, you know, I, I do a lot of things. I do a podcast. I work on different businesses. I'm an investor. Obviously I spend hours either writing or playing chess, but, uh, a lot of times I don't feel like doing some of these things and you have to do it. The world does not care if you don't <laughs> feel like doing it. It's not going to reward. I don't feel like doing it. And, and if you're going to get the pleasures of the things you're doing, you got to do it with or without, uh, whether you're motivated or not. Yep. hundred yep. percent. And then, you know, some of my best days now are the days that I showed up 
you know, and I didn't have it, but it's that first 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds, right? So it's it's harder than we'd like it to be, but not as hard as we think it will be. But then just making that, again, none of us are perfect. I'm certainly not. There are no perfect human beings, et cetera. But even getting 5, 10, 15% better at this is life-changing, fully life-changing. You know, part of what's exciting about what we're doing is the this these ideas help the most elite performers go to the next, next level. And they also help people who don't know if they want to live another life go to a place of, of having a more deep, sustainable meaning, um, which frankly is, is part of what gives my life so much meaning. Well, what's a story where kind of you work with somebody and it really, these ideas and, uh, and the other ideas in your book, I mean, again, you have 451 ideas or chapters in this book and it's beautiful, all the stories. You really have almost like the Robert Greene style where you mix kind of the stories with the concepts What's what's a life that you feel you've really changed and upped their game? Wow. Um, blessed to serve a lot of the elite performers, um, which we've already talked about. But, you know, we've had a number of individuals who literally plan to end their life. You know, literally, I can imagine a couple of women in particular right now who share their stories, who somehow found us, somehow found a connection to it and started practicing these ideas. Um and we haven't talked about the ultimate game and getting out of the extrinsic motivation, but just seeing that life is about more than what we've been seduced to believe it's about. Um, but but having individuals find meaning in their lives and to have been supported by my work um, is deeply meaningful. I'm not giving you a good story to go with that per se, um, but that, that's been helpful. Um, I'm sorry. But been, talk about, been talk really about the difference between extrinsic motivation and, and the real game. Yeah, so then the context in which I talk about that is objective one of the book. So I like to start by saying you got to know the ultimate game. And this is a 2,500-year-old challenge. We have been seduced to play the wrong game. We've been seduced to go after the fame, the wealth, the hotness, the extrinsic motivators. And that's a 2,500-year-old challenge. That's not new, but it's amplified to the highest degree right now. Um and, you know, scientists are unequivocal that even if you are successfully pursuing the extrinsic stuff, um, you are less, quote, psychologically stable than people who are predominantly pursuing the intrinsic motivators of becoming a better person, deepening relationships, and making a contribution to your community, independent of being globally recognized and having a lot of Instagram followers and all the other things. Nothing wrong with the extrinsic, obviously, and in fact, it's very important, but we need our orientation to be predominantly focused on the intrinsic. Um, that's the ultimate game, as I see it. Um, and again, this is what we use chess for with Emerson. That's the chess is like the secondary game that has given us a context to win the ultimate game, to show up and be him his best self such that he can perform in a game he really enjoys. Um, but there's something fun about stepping back a bit and um, um, and seeing it from that broader perspective um, and then showing up, uh, you know, with an intensity and a commitment to being your best self in service of something bigger than yourself. It's interesting with this, it feels like when I'm reading this book, you've read, you've read basically every personal development book on the planet, it seems. You have so many, I mean, I have as well in part because many of these people have been guests on the podcast over the past nine years. But talk about some of the things you've learned. You have so many stories in the book. Again, I don't know where to begin. That, that's the problem with the book with 451 <laughs> chapters. Like I wanna talk about every chapter, but obviously that's not possible. 
if I open just a random thing, there's Hal Elrod. He just was on the podcast. There's, you know, okay, I don't know this guy, David Reynolds, Constructive Living. Yeah. Geez. So Dan Millman. So one of the things I do, Joseph Campbell said, one of my heroes on my wall back there, the great hero mythologist, of course. He says, uh, when you find an author who grabs you, read everything they've written and then read everything that they read that influenced them. So that I agree with that completely. Me. Yeah, so that's kind of been my strategy, you know, of like you find an author that grabs you. So one of the first authors that grabbed me was Dan Millman. I read Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which was probably the second self-development book I read after Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I just loved it. So then I read everything that he wrote, and this is actually funny, I, I it comes back to chess. So I read everything he wrote, and then I paid him like a hundred bucks to do one-on-one -on -one coaching with him forever ago, like 20 years ago or more, you know? I just wanted to say hi. He's like, all right, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I just want to say hi. You're awesome. You know, let's go. He's into coming into town in LA where I was living like the next week. So I'm like, well, let's connect. I pick him up from the airport. We play chess. Literally, there's the chess connection there. Um, but he introduced me to David Reynolds. So David Reynolds is one of Dan Millman's biggest influences. David Reynolds, no one's heard of him. No one's heard of his book. It's called Constructive Living. It's a brilliant book. He's a Zen therapist, um, a Zen therapist. Um, and uh, his big message there is that your behaviors drive your feelings more than the other way around. And literally, he's the one who says, what is not feeling like and have to do with it? You know, you've decided to do something. Now what needs to be done? Don't let your feelings drive your behaviors. Let your identity drive your behaviors, which will drive your feelings. And I've architected my entire life's philosophy around that. Get clear on who you are at your best. Do what needs to get done, whether you feel like it or not, and let the feelings follow. So that's David Reynolds. Um, just constructive living is like really short, profound book um, that I talk about in the context of that chapter. What does he mean by constructive living? Meaning um, mindfully, deliberately, um, consciously. Um, mm. And his main thing is now what needs to get done. Now what needs to get done. Now what needs to get done. That's the question you need to ask yourself. Not how am I feeling about this, but now what needs to get done. I extended that into targeted thinking. So when I feel overwhelmed or I'm feeling frustrated with my my kids and, and whatever, um, Stepping back when I can between the stimulus and the response and choosing a better response, I like to say, what do I want? In any given situation, I want to set a clear target. Um, and then what do I need to do to get that? Uh, and it's, again, one of the things I teach Emerson to deal with the, the negative voices. All right, well, what do you want? I want to learn from this. All right, well, what do you need to do in order to um, do that? Um, but that's his basic idea um, and what I think he's getting at when he's talking about constructive living. Let's talk about for a second what you, what you just said you tell Emerson. What if Emerson said, what I want to do is win? <laughs> you kind of have well, to Well, he does, dude. He's a competitive the... dude. I mean, he, he wants to win, no question. But he knows that, that he can't win every time, period. And he knows how many times Magnus has lost. He watched Hikaru play, and he didn't play well in the last tournament. Perfect. That's part of the deal. Eh, I lost one. I mean, it's amazing how quickly he's like, it is what it is, you know? Um, and uh, it's hard to put into words, man, how powerful that is. Because it's like, it's such a foreign idea to me. Wait, you can actually really get that without having to like convince you of it? You know, and I've been, Carol Dweck is my biggest parenting influence. So I read her stuff for, before we had kids. 
And her idea of the growth mindset and self-theories, two of her books that I talk about in this book, are my parenting guidebook. So since they were born, I have constantly said that the only way you get good at anything is what? Practice. Why are mistakes good? Because that's the only way you learn. Literally, whenever I make a mistake that's just obnoxious and just silly, I'll go, oh, shoot, I was almost the first perfect person. And they giggle. And I'm like, oh, no, I've made 1,722,648 mistakes. Ha, 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 isn't that funny? Why are mistakes good? Because that's the only way you learn. So we've just tried to create this um, culture and consciousness where it's the default, you know? Um, so I didn't answer your question, but it's almost surreal how it, it hasn't required as heavy of a lift as you would think it would, you know? You know, it's interesting, uh, the fixed mindset, growth mindset, tying that into parenting. It's also like what I consider the sequel to Carol's book, Mindset, is Angelo Duckworth's book, Grit. And, you know, that kind of takes it one step further, which is, okay, get that growth mindset. But then, like you say, you're going to fail. What type of person keeps going? Yep. And... Yeah. And then passion, perseverance. And then it's it's so cool you said that because even when we were talking about what it means to be a prodigy. So I I one of the things I've taught Emerson, and if he was here right now, we'd have this chat. She says that, you know, her formula for achievement, she says that effort counts twice. So what I've taught him, and we've talked about a million times, is talent matters. And talent she defines as the speed with which you can cultivate skill. So talent times effort equals skill. And then skill times effort equals achievement, right? So effort counts twice. But then he extended it. We were doing a little video for our community, you know, because people like hearing from him and all that. So he was doing it after we we did a tournament, right? Um, and I'm always trying to emphasize that it's not his talent. We like to talk about, he has, yeah, he has a fast brain and it seems to work well with chess, but it's your effort you're putting in that is squeezing the talent into skill. And then the further effort you put in is what's allowing you to achieve. But when I did it with him, he he missed a couple of little takes. We were doing our third take on it, right? And he, I said, hey, buddy, what does Angela Duckworth say about how you how you do things? And he said, talent times effort equals skill. And then he said, skill times effort equals achievement. And then he just spontaneously said, and achievement times more effort equals mastery. And he wants to be a grandmaster. That's his unequivocal ambition. Um, So that idea of bringing effort into it is the number one thing that I got out of um, Angela Duckworth saying, which again is, well, what do you want? And then what do you need to do? And the answer is never think about it more, you know, and, and avoid the hard things. It's lean in to rule number one. It's supposed to be hard. And and you, we need you to do what you need to do, whether you feel like it or not, you know? It, it's so important that appreciating the word do, because, you know, thinking, thinking won't make anyone a better basketball player. I always tell people, you got to like get there at five in the morning every day and shoot baskets like you have to do stuff and it's the same thing even with writing like you could think all you want about oh this is what my story is this is but unless you start writing you're not writing you're not getting better at writing in somerset mon you know stephen pressfield has that great quote from him of hey do you write uh only when you're inspired or how do you do it and his answer of course is i yeah, only write when i'm inspired thankfully inspiration strikes at 9 a.m every morning <laughs> So, but that's a protocol. 
That's a checklist. That's Stephen Pressfield. You got to create the conditions such that the muse, the daimon, your genius, which is simply the Roman take on the Greek daimon. Genius and daimon are the same thing, just Greek and Roman. So we got to do everything we can to create the conditions such that the best version of ourselves can come through. That's my life's work. Like that's arete in a word. Um, but that's what we're talking about with these checklists and the protocol and the margins, whether it's chess or business or relationships or special forces operators. Um, uh, yeah. So let's let's build my checklist a little bit. So sleep eight hours a day. But but it was interesting what you said. You're in bed nine to ten hours a day because then you know you'll get that eight hours of sleep. Yeah. So I use an aura like, ring. Um, you know, to track it, if one uses a, a fitness or whatever tracker, there's a 90% efficiency is very, very good. You know, 80, 85, you want to be 85, 90%, but 90% plus is like world class. So if you wanted nine hours of sleep to use round math and 90% efficiency would demand 10 hours in bed to get the nine hours of sleep. Um, and again, you different people have different standards, but I talked about this. It's so calm too. sleep. The seven plus hours of sleep that are recommended, the odds that you are the type of person because of some genetic mutation that you can get by on less than seven to eight hours of sleep are the same as the odds of being struck by lightning in your lifetime, which are surprisingly high, by the way, one in 11,000, you know, but anyway, sleep is important, but, but step back for a second, because the first thing I have people do is a very simple exercise to get clarity on their protocol, take out a single piece of paper draw a line down the middle, write do on the upper left and don't on the upper right, then think back to a time in your life when you were at your absolute best. So when you were performing at your best, and it could be a day, a week, a month, a year, even a decade, and then think about what were you doing and what were you not doing? And then look at your yeah. current life and look at the things that you did at your best you're not currently doing and you didn't do when you're at your best that you are currently doing, circle one thing in the do, one thing in the don't, that's the fastest way. And, and stopping the thing, you're, the kryptonite you're doing right now is the fastest way to change your life. Then the layer below that is, I have you do the same thing in energy, work, and love, what we call the big three. So what do you do when you're at your best, energy, work, and love-wise? And I wanna know the top three things in those categories, and then I want you to get clarity on that, commit to it every morning, and then do those top three things, and then come back to me in 30 days and tell me how you did. You create a scaffolding in your life that, that buttresses you against life's worst challenges. And again, you do those things, especially when you don't feel like doing those things. Whereas in the past, you may have stopped doing those things, and that's when you went off the rails. Um, but that's how I would encourage one to get more clarity on the protocol, do's and don'ts. But yeah, if we wanted to architect your checklist now, I'd want to know well, what three things do you do to keep yourself at your best in your energy? You know, and, and you're right, it's probably not enough. So, okay, I attempt to sleep eight hours a day. Last night I did it, the night before, the night before I didn't. And it's got to be more consistent. Uh, like I, I, the best... When I've been at my best, I go to sleep around 8.30, I wake up at five. That's when I've been at my best. Now it's a little harder to do that for, for and I can't give excuses. There's yep. really no reason why I shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, nutrition, I tend to eat about one and a half meals a day, all nutritious food, uh, you know, as 
I want to say as organic as possible, but I use Uber Eats, so I don't fully know. And um, but I think I do pretty well there. And um, exercise, I'm probably not as good as I should be. So I'll exercise maybe ten minutes a day. You know, I try to lift weights, but with barbells that are sitting here in my office, I do a bunch of push-ups, but I don't do like thirty burpees like your your son's doing and and I don't go to the gym. I mean, I, I, there's a role for exercise, but I probably don't do it enough. Do we get a hundred points on your chest rating coming just from stepping up your exercise game? <laughs> well, it's so interesting. No like I, I, I had the, the winner. So I told you I was in the tournament of state senior champions. So I was the senior slash over 50 champion of Georgia. And there was a bunch of other guys. So this grandmaster, Jesse Cry, shout out to Gra uh, Jesse. He's also been a coach of mine. Um, hmm. He won the tournament and I happen to know him. So uh, he's been like two years ago, very thin, kind of almost, I, no offense to him, wimpy looking guy. But then he started running. I think he's even been in a, a marathon now. And you could see he's bulked up. Like he's got muscles, you know, and, and, and his shoulders are wider. And, uh, uh, and then he, he won two major tournaments, uh, this past year, which was unusual for him. He's, he's almost my age. And so that was, so I've noticed that in the, in the, in the another guy who won the U S senior championship also was like built. So you could see there's a difference when you have muscles, you have more energy. Yeah. And you're training again. I, I, <laughs> your physiology is driving a lot more of your psychology and mental performance than you think. Like it's just a fact, and and it works in business. You think it works in sales? Oh my god! In... No, I know it does. And again, there, there's more to it than just the fact that your brain works better when your body's working better. So if I'm energized and I got a great night of sleep, I'm eating well, I'm training. I, I can speak personally. N equals one. I perform better. If I get six and a half, seven hours of sleep, I perform at a remarkably diminished level compared to the version of me that gets eight, eight and a half plus hours of sleep. Full stop. I can do things on eight and a half hours of sleep that I can't do on six and a half. Now, it doesn't mean I'm a complete incompetent, but I know what it feels like to be on, and I like doing things at the highest possible level. Therefore, I prioritize. I turn off Netflix. I turn off the phone. I don't care about those things. I care about feeling great tomorrow morning and being at my best. Um, but then... Yeah, uh, uh, business-wise and otherwise, for sure. I mean, even the intangible benefit of you feel someone in their presence when they're living in integrity with their values, which is the seventh objective in the book, is you got to activate your soul force. You got to activate your superpower. Um, this is ancient Chinese philosophy, to cultivate effortless right action, wei. Um, when you do that, you cultivate a moral charisma that people feel. And there's neuroscientific proof of that. We evolved to feel resonance in people. We want to follow those people. So absolutely, when you walk into a business meeting and you're walking in, and you're clearly a demonstration that you're living in integrity with the things you believe, yeah, people may not be able to tell you the unconscious reasons that they're influenced by you, but there's a certain effect. And of course, you're performing um, better. You're in a better mood. You're friendlier. All those things come together yeah, that doesn't seem like a, a hard thing to to argue over. You know what I mean? Like two versions of you, one that's well-rested and fit and feeling great and optimistic and all the other things that go with it, and the other that's frumpy and hungover. And well, you tell me which one's going to do better. I agree. Like in the past year and a half, for instance, I've stopped all alcohol. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Some people enjoy 
having a little drink here and there, but I've avoided all of that. Anything, you know, I've reduced carbs, like anything that will get in the way of my brain, I've stopped. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You mentioned something very interesting earlier about posture and posture is almost a way to demonstrate that you're living in resonance with your values. And I'll just tell you a quick story. One time, uh, somebody took a photograph of me in a tournament and my coach who lives in Armenia, um, Avatik Gregorian, he's been on this podcast. Uh, my coach saw the photo and he sent it back to me and said, I would love to play an opponent who looks like you right in this photo. And I was slouched <laughs> over. I was, you know, kind of frumpy looking. And he was right. Like, I was ashamed of that photo. And Yeah, dude. So imagine, and this is, again, Emerson walks in physiologically and also, yeah. I mean, the, you talk about the war, right? The metaphorical war that is a chess match. Well, boom, of course you want to show up as a warrior. So your guy's telling you, he looks at you and he's like, dude, this guy, his body posture sucks. His mental game must suck. He's weak. I'm going to push him. And he's going to crumble the moment things get hard. Whereas I'm, you know, we want to have an athlete competing at a chessboard who when he, things go a little bit wrong, he, boom, posture gets improved. Chest up, chin down is what I tell Emerson all the time. Breathe deeply through your nose, down in your belly, exhale. In between every single move, he's breathing and he's getting his posture right, you know? And, and those things matter. Again, they matter in general and they matter, they matter, especially when the margins matter, you know? And when, when everybody's performing at a certain level, you better be doing the things that most people aren't doing if you want to go to the next level, um, from my vantage point. Um, and again, these are fun things. These are not chores that one needs to check off of a list. This is, well, I'm curious. Can I get to 2250? And then can I get to 2300? All right, well, what price am I going to need to pay? I'm going to need to do this and this and this. And that's fun. What an opportunity to prove the people that told me I'm crazy wrong. What did the absolute best do? I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do a little more. And then I'm going to be creative about it and do, again, what Tiger Woods did to golf. With Michael Jordan, I'm re-watching The Last Dance. Nobody trained before Jordan. Right, And then Jordan needed to get through the Pistons, so all of a sudden he put on 15 pounds season to season to deal with Detroit. And, and Tim Grover said, you know, why do you need big arms? And he said, what do you think the first thing people see is when he takes off his warm-up coat? His arms, boom, everything matters. There's a level of the opposite of what your coach said, you know, that people feel. And then you never slouch. You never let him see you. Week when Horace Grant was complaining about getting kicked by the Bulls, Jordan pulls him up. Don't let him see you. If for a moment look weak, I mean, there's that matador, is how Jim Moore and Tony Schwartz put it in the powerful engagement. The matador that, that is the tennis player that's strutting around, walking around, you're never going to see them lose that composure of them being their best selves, especially 
when things are going sideways, when everybody else spins out, they're the ones that are, we call it flipping the switch. Flip the switch, chest up, chin down, feet grounded, pull a thread through your head, something called the Alexander technique that actors are trained in, which is lengthen and widen your spine. Have proper posture so you can breathe properly. And oh, by the way, a slouched posture, you're not breathing right. So your brain's not getting the oxygen you need. You're playing a competitive yeah. chess game. We need you to get oxygenated. So again, all those things matter aesthetically in terms of how your opponent's feeling your energy and just how you're feeding your brain with oxygen. All these things kind of add up, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're getting me so, fired up, James. <laughs> I know. I want you to be my coach now. Let's go. Um, I'm thinking the same thing, by the way. <laughs> let, let me ask you, like, uh, just about the book itself. What again? The the approach is very interesting. It reminds me of there's there's two different styles of people who use PowerPoint presentations. There's one where they have like ten slides. There's let's say you're talking for an hour. There's one approach where you have ten slides and you put a lot of information on each slide and you spend time on each slide. And then there's one where you have like a hundred slides and you're going clicking every few seconds to the next slide. And that keeps people active and interested. Your style of book reminds me of that second style, which I think is more an interesting style, actually. What made you, what gave you the idea to basically have like an enormous number of chapters? Because <laughs> that's the beauty slide, of the book, I think. I, I got to tell you a funny story. So then 101 slides, that's how many slides I had. I had a 45 minute keynote with, with some Q&A, right? So I send these guys, the special forces guys, my, my presentation. I'm like, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to blow through these. I like to tell a story visually. It's very aesthetic, you know? The book kind of Steve Jobs is on my wall, you know? So I'm trying to make everything insanely great and beautiful and simplistic and minimalist. So I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm going to blow through these slides, you know what I mean? I like to let the, the slide tell a story, but I, I go through it quickly. The <laughs> Uh, a couple of guys come up, 101 slides? You know, you realize you have 45 minutes. You're like, don't worry about it, guys. We're good. Uh, so that you brought that up is funny. And that's the style that I've learned, that I've developed organically, that I've learned to trust. And people like Stephen Pressfield have really inspired me with his war of art. Pablo Coelho is another writer I admire, that pithy, yeah, unpretentious, sure. let's get in, let's get out. More wisdom and less time is also one of our themes with the work I do with Philosopher's Notes. Um, and then I just find it fun. Um, but I actually wrote 80% of a normal book. So I had a normal, quote, fluffy 250 or 60 page book written. I had a deal with a top three publisher and I walked away from it a couple years ago, two, whatever, three years ago. Because we got into an argument over 10,000 words. They wanted 60 to 80,000 words max. And I told them, look, I want to create what I hope to be a seminal book, you know, on the line of a seven habits with humility, knowing how difficult that is. But that's the quality of book I aspire to write. Well, that's a 120,000 word book out the gate. It's been edited, et cetera. I just want some flexibility. Let me go up to 100,000. Hard no, argument no, walked away from the deal, right? Anyway, came back. I'm so back. glad you did. Dude, came back, but I still had the idea that I needed to write a normal book. And I got to a point where um, it just it wasn't my style to write a long-form chapter that conformed to all the normal standards. And I asked my team what ideas most changed their life that I had shared with them. And, um, you know, like 10, 15 people on our team, and, and they all came back with different ideas. Like three, five, 10, my right-hand guy had like 100 ideas, but they were all different no, there were very little overlap. And I'm like, well, which one am I going to leave out? Because that idea changed her life and that one changed his. And 
then it all kind of clicked of, all right, it's going to be a different book. And then it was, well, what's the number? How many are we going to do? 300 ideas, 400 ideas, and then 451 is the degrees Fahrenheit you need to start a fire. So if you want to wow, hit- I didn't know an, that. Yeah. So if you want to hit an activation energy point is the chemistry phrase, um, where one thing becomes another thing. So if you want to boil water, nothing happens until 212 degrees. Then one thing changes to another state. Um, fire is ignited at 451 degrees Fahrenheit. Paper is ignited. Um, so then it became, boom, it's 451. Um, and we knew each chapter would be two to three pages. So it'd be around 1,000 um, pages long. And then literally the book is a mashup of uh, The War of Art by Pressfield, short, pithy, hyper-readable micro chapters, and War and Peace, a dense tome. And literally when I was writing the book, I imagined the people we've talked about, the commanding military officers, the you know sports executives and, and coaches holding the book. I closed my eyes and I felt the weight of the book and I wanted it to have like a gravitas to it, yet be simultaneously hyper-readable. Open it anywhere, get in, get out, um, and then it just clicked. But even my, we partnered with a, a different publishing company to create our own imprint where I had complete creative autonomy and, and all the things. But even he's like, uh, you know, <laughs> a little crazy there. I'm like, dude, perfect. We got to be willing to push here. We got to be willing to do something different. I think it, this is what we need to do, um, et cetera. And I appreciate you asking because it was a fun creative process. No, it looks like a lot of fun. And really, it, in, it inspired me. Like, I want to do something like this. Like, it's very, it, it, again, if you had written a 200-page book called Arate, I probably wouldn't even have noticed it because I feel like there's just too many blah 200-page books about whatever, personal improvement. But this really stood out just, you know, they say never judge a book by its cover, but you have to because it's the only thing you see <laughs> and until you open the book. And just the dimensions of this book, it's like a little cube. And, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 beautiful to look at. And, to, and you're right, it's got the right weight. And there's so much, like everything I want to read, like, you know, you have, you have all my favorite books mentioned here. Like here's one where here's a chapter uh, where you talk about Eckhart Tolle on food poisoning and you, and you put it, you mentioned The Power of Now, which is one of my all-time favorite books. So talk about Eckhart Tolle and, and The Power of Now and, and what you mentioned in here. Dude, well, let's bring it back to chess because that's kind of the consistent theme. So Eckhart Tolle, that particular idea is if you eat a certain type of food that makes you sick, at a certain point, you need to stop eating that food. You, you would stop eating it. If you knew that it gave you food poisoning, you'd stop eating the food. Why do you eat, in quotes, the same thoughts that make you sick? So why do you allow the same thoughts to arise, one, in general, and any performer in particular, that don't help you, that make you sick? So getting clarity on that, and he says at some point you need to move past acceptance. Oh, shoot, I'm just bound to be sick you know, psychologically or physically, you don't do that with food. Don't do it with your thoughts. You need to move from acceptance to change. Um, and this is where, again, the active, you got to do something about it. We got to look at that, analyze it, and see what you might be able to do to improve. But that's kind of how I play with with Tolle's ideas um, on that front. And uh, it's funny, too, because I mentioned Tolle another time in the book, where um, at, when COVID hit, he did a talk talking about um, Jesus's, uh, you know, the parable of the the guy that built a house on sand versus a foundation of, of of rock and granite, right? 
And the basic metaphor there is protocols. It's checklists. If when the storms come, you have not built your house on a solid foundation, and of course, in that context, it was following the teachings of, of um, what Jesus put out. But, but the basic metaphorical idea there is you need a solid protocol such that when the storms come, you have a solid foundation on which you've built your life, which of course is going to have the thoughts we're talking about, the behaviors that we have control over, um, which to continue the theme for a moment longer, is the essence of Stoicism, which of course is a major theme in the book, my favorite ancient wisdom philosophy. You can't control what's going on. You can't control whether you won or lost the game, but you can control your thoughts and behaviors in response to those things. That's an obvious truth. Everyone knows that. But are you practicing the things you need to practice in order to be a master at that aspect of your life? Um, that's, you know, some of the way I integrate Atole with the, um, the Stoics and other traditions, et cetera. No, that's great. I mean, you've integrated hundreds of different philosophers, both ancient and modern and very wise people. Uh, you being easily in their ranks, you know, with this, with this book. So you must be very proud when when did the book actually come out, or when does it come out? It just came out, dude. So we just released it uh, November fourteenth. So it's only been out for six weeks. Um, you know, feel just excited about it. You know, grateful for the support we've received, and um, it's volume one, dude. You know, I'm back at it. So, <laughs> you know, God willing, uh, Deo Valente, um, five volumes is the vision. You know, so I'm back to work and. Oh my God, what are you going to include even in the second? You include so many ideas in this one. Dude, I left so many out. You know, every day I do a different kind of, um, we call them a plus one. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 451 degrees to activate a fire, but it's 2200 degrees to forge a sword. So five volumes is 2255 degrees. So that's just my straight line. Again, it's, it's, it's Robert Greene. It's, it's, the path of the master, you know, it's the practice. Um, so I'm excited about it. And you know, I mean, even this chat, dude, I could write a few chapters just on what we talked about, you know, and the yeah. different experiences. Uh, here's a line from the SOCOM guys, right? So General Fenton, and they've given me permission to talk about these things, which is why I'm explicitly asked, can I talk about this, you know? Um, one of his lines was, normal people say, oh, there's no way. Special operators say, special forces operators say, oh, there's a way. That's an awesome idea. You know, oh, there's no way. Oh, there's a way. All right, well, how are you showing up? Oh, there's no way I can do that. Oh, there's a way. I'm going to find a way to, to, I'm excited about your goal, dude, 2255. <laughs> That's like, a, I'm personally fired up about getting there, you know, and it becomes a fun game, right? Yeah, no, I, I and look, I've never... To, much to many people's dismay, I've never wavered in my belief that I could do this, but I guess I've been, I thought I would do it like pretty quickly and, and it hasn't happened that way. So that I have to battle negative self-talk. That is an issue for me. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about special uh, forces and the ability to, to say there is a way when everybody tells you there isn't a way. It reminds me of a video Jocko Willink did uh, first off, I love Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership. That's like a philosophy of my my life. And Jocko has this video where he talks about, you know, a soldier might come up to him and says, look, we have this problem, this problem, this problem. And Jocko says, good. And then the soldier will say, no, no, you don't understand, but there's also this problem, this problem, this problem. And Jocko says, good. <laughs> and, the, you know, it goes on like that a few more times. And, you know, 
I think really the point of the video is just hearing him say good with that confidence. But, you know, he basically concludes that, you know, just do it now. Yep. So. 100%. And the way that I feel it, again, we're using our conversation around chess as a context for this. I look at it and go, all right, cool. So it's taking you a little bit longer than you want. Rule number one, it's supposed to be hard. You're on a heroic quest. That is rule number one. It's supposed to be hard. So when the hardships come, when the dragons come, we don't whine about it. We go, all right, perfect. And then I say good. I like to say perfect. Perfect. It's harder than you think. What price are you going to need to pay? So now we need to step back and go, I'm going to need to pay a bigger price than I thought. But then I personally get excited because chess doesn't matter. Like, okay, it's fun. It's a way to challenge yourself. But but why? And if we can get you to go to the next level in your energy, truly getting you up to world-class standards, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, and focusing, we're going to add 10 years to your life. That matters. And then we use chess and your passion for it and the price you're getting to pay to win the ultimate game, which is you being a better person, deepening relationships, making a contribution, showing us what's possible. When you set a hard, high goal, you decide, and you may decide you don't want to pay the price, which is also fine, 100% fine. We want to know what we want, why we want it. Then we got to know what we need to pay to get it and decide whether we're going to pay it or not. Then we say good when it's hard. And that's what Jocko says. He says it's good I got injured. Good. I needed some time to recover or I needed to work out that, you know, or I got laid off. Good. Hated the job anyway. I wanted to find a better job. He always immediately alchemizes it. So good. I'm struggling to go to the next level. Looks like I'm going to need to go to the next level in other aspects of my life in order to perform well on chess. And that's awesome because now I'm going to benefit in all these other ways I couldn't have anticipated, right? You know, and it's, it's fascinating because the ways you realize you need to improve your life they're uncovered by the mistakes and the loss. Like you wouldn't realize this without it. So for instance, you know, I realized I pretty much had a fixed mindset that I identified my identity in part with being, you know, 30 years ago, a successful chess player. And I had to crush my ego down. So I no longer identified as that. I can't identify as that right now. I had to be aware of these things that were from an ego point of view causing me pain. And that was a life improving thing. That happened to me also when I would on, on several occasions in my life go broke. It was, there was an ego thing going on and you have to kind of crush your ego to overcome these hardships. So now we're gonna go ego on it, dude. So at the end of the book, I talk about the ego. I see the ego very differently. I see the ego from a psychoanalytic perspective where the ego is the healthy integrated id and superego. So a healthy ego needs to be transcended, of course, and plugged into something bigger than ourselves. But I would offer it was your superego that was ashamed that you weren't impressing yes. people anymore. And it was the id that wanted everything quickly and didn't want to have to pay the price. And it was the disintegration of those two things and a disintegrated ego that didn't allow Completely. you to manage that, that we need to work on in order to have that solid base. Longer fun chat. But then I also go back to your 2255 peak in chess. And I, I would frankly do the exact opposite. I'd go David Goggins on it. And I'd say, look, cookie jar is his thing. When life hits him hard and he's failing at his Guinness World Championship pull-ups or his long race, he goes into his cookie jar and feasts on prior success. So I'd reframe it. I call those hero bars. I'd go back to when you were at your best and go, that's like me. I may not be there right now, but I'm the guy who was 2255. I was crushing it, even within these constraints. I wasn't even playing as much as these guys, and I was doing this. Now, knowing what I know, 
and the price I'm going to need to pay, it's going to be so fun to close the gap between where I am and there. But I'd use that as fuel with humility of how hard it's going to be. But um, building up that self-image of that's like you, that's like you, that's like you. We're not attached to, you know, that in an unhealthy way. But, um, dude, that that's like you've been there, done that. You're a champion. My kid won the, you know, JV. It was truly JV, not the elite Texas state championship. It was the second tournament he played in. And, and you know, that's, that's like great. you, dude. You show up and you win. You're a champion. And when you don't win, I don't tell you, no, that wasn't like you. You're a loser. I say, dude, you're a winner. Let's learn from this because that's like you to bring home the biggest trophy that's bigger than you. You know, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. We want that self-image to be up because you won't outperform a poor self-image. That's rule number one of mental toughness in sports. And if you think you suck and you aren't a good good log, dude, and again, all the asterisks, but that self-image of that's like you to perform at a really high level when it matters most and to learn when you get your butt kicked. And Magnus, Channel Magnus, how does he do it? How does he respond to losses with a better performance? I'd want to deconstruct that. And um, again, you're getting me fired up, but but those are some things that arise. One thing I've noticed about Magnus is that, you know, he, he became world champion, let's say 10 or 11 years ago, and he didn't rest. Because like when I met him a few months ago, we were in Norway and I had dinner with him, his dad and his coach. He was telling me some of the things he's learned over the past few years, meaning since he's become yeah. world champion, he has continued to learn at a very deep level. And he told me which of the top 10 players he didn't think knew these deeper concepts that he's learned only since he's become world champion. Can you imagine being world champion wow. of something and then learning even deeper? Yes. You know, Yes, is the short answer. And it was That's like amazing what he yeah. was saying because it, it almost seemed like basic things, but then he would like put it in a different light. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Dude, but that's the best. The best are focused on those basic fundamentals and that pursuit of of mastery. I mean, this is a, it's asymptotic. Our potential is asymptotic. So he's genuinely curious and loves the game so much that it's just this incessant craft. I remember in his documentary, and that's so cool, and I'd love to see a picture with you that I can share with Emerson, but in his documentary, you know, he's being interviewed, and the interviewer is asking him, well, how often do you think about chess? And he's like, I'm thinking about it right now. <laughs> You're interviewing me, but part of my mind is working on, it's just that beautiful, healthy, wonderful, unapologetic obsession, you know, with the craft and, um, with the joy of mastery and knowing that we're never going to get there. There's no there, there, you know, that's, that's so inspiring. and so cool to imagine you all having a great dinner. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely part of this adventure of this quest. So Brian, Brian Johnson, Arete spelled A-R-E-T-E roughly. There's a, a little accent over the last E, but you could just type in A-R-E-T-E into Amazon. Activate your heroic potential. Volume one. This is like right now, I feel the personal improvement book, like, cause you could, you assimilate everything from all these other books and stories and your own experiences. And you've got it right here. This book, Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential is an amazing book. I'm going to take a lot of the advice in this book to heart and a lot of the stuff we just spoke about. I hope we, we meet in person someday. It'd be great. And, uh, if Emerson, your kid, wants to play some games, I'm always uh, I'm always open to it. Like, he give be a good practice partner for him. 
Dude, so, I would. Uh, I was actually thinking that. I appreciate you bringing that up. I'm excited to connect offline and um, really inspired. I really appreciate you. I've been inspired by you and your work for for a very long time, and just oh, who you, you are, how you show up. Um, you know, it's a privilege to be here with you, and just really enjoyed our chat. And I'm really excited to continue this conversation and uh, deepen our friendship, and uh, just have a good feeling. So, bless you, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you. So, and and look, definitely. Work on that volume too and come on anytime. So thanks, Brian. Thanks, James. 